This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 80. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 80 you're currently listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Universal Audio, Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. Welcome to show number 80, 20 away from 100, which is going to happen approximately, I believe it's the second week in November. More to come on that, not on this show, but we'll talk about it in future shows. It's going to come up and it's going to be great. We're going to, we're going to really have a good time. Speaking about having a great time and learning a whole ton of stuff, this is the episode for you. Uh, I have on Grammy-nominated mastering and restoration engineer as well as an archiving specialist. I'm talking about Jessica Thompson from Coast Mastering in uh, Berkeley, California. Jessica has digitized, restored, and revived historic recordings from uh, The Bottom Line, Cafe Lena, Errol Garner, Woody Guthrie Archives, Newport Jazz and Folk Festival, uh, which, of course, that included performances by people like Pete Seeger, Roger McGuinn, Lightning Hopkins, Doc Watson, Miles Davis. Yeah. And her remaster of Errol Garner's iconic recording, The Complete Concert by the Sea, which came out on Sony Legacy, was uh, nominated for the Best Historical Album uh, Grammy 2016. And uh, yeah, so she she cleans, digitizes, restores rare vinyl and cassette recordings from uh, awesome tapes from Africa and many uh, numero group compilations. And in her previous career, she was a uh, radio producer. She uh, interviewed Max Roach, believe it or not, and the organ player at Fenway Park uh, for WGBH in Boston. She is in a field that is super specialized. Obviously, you know, mastering is one part of it, but the digitization, the archiving aspect of it, the restoration of it, you're going to learn a ton on this interview. My head was spinning with how many questions I had for her. I wanted to keep her there uh, in the interview for a lot longer, but of course, you know, we have a time limit. So, uh, a self-imposed time limit. Otherwise it would just be a monster to put together and edit. And then you'd be listening for the end of time. So there, yeah. So Jessica Thompson coming up. So <laughs> I have to tell you we're it's, uh, I'm recording this. It's a, it's a Friday and I was having a panic attack because my main Mac that I've got everything on, which is backed up, I'll say that. Uh, the main Mac suffered some catastrophic, I don't know, bout of amnesia, I would say. Was running the, you know, the file system check. You know, when you start up a Mac, you can hold down Command S and you can run the file system check and get all the, you know, the gook, gobbledygook Unix code in there and, and start to really poke around. My machine was not playing ball. It did not want to come alive. So was panicking a bit, trying to figure out what the smartest move was. And uh, long story short, I ended up finding my, and this is no advertisement for them. This is just me praising them for saving my butt here. But uh, Disc Warrior, you know, I bought it a long time ago. I had a, uh, a DVD or a, or a CD, I guess, of it, and I had the serial number. So I popped that disc in and it wouldn't work because the version I had was kind of old and not uh, used to dealing with 64-bit systems. So I went on the Disc Warrior website, entered the serial number, and for about 65, 66 bucks, I guess, maybe maybe it was a little more, maybe 68, uh, I was able to 
get them to sell me a new updated copy, uh, send me a USB stick that's bootable, and also send me an email with a download. So I was able to uh, put my machine on another machine in target disk mode, and I was able to save it. And it rebuilt the directory, and I am now recording on the machine. So I am no longer having a panic attack, and I'm really happy that uh, I'm able to get this show done. Nothing was lost that I'm aware of. I'll tell you about that later if uh, if I do lose anything. Anyhow, brought up a lot of, um, you know, whenever you have a potential disaster, brings up a lot of self-reflection, brings up a lot of like, what what am I doing? Am I organized? Am I not organized? Am I playing for real here? So uh, it really got me to double down on just continuing to improve all systems in my life. And a long time ago, in many early episodes, it's so early, I've forgotten what I said. I'd have to go back, and I'm just not going to do that right now because I want to get this show done and out to you. But I talked about early on, and I'll tie this in. I swear I will. I talked early on about a guy named Graham Hill whose TED Talk I saw. Uh, check him out. He runs a, a website called Life Edited. Big inspiration for me in terms of just getting my shit together. And it's all about, for me, um, what I get out of that is, you know, digitizing all documents. I use a thing called Mobile Doc Scanner on uh, Android to do that. I'm sure there's an iOS ver uh, variation on the theme or a iOS version. Basically allows you to take a document, take a picture of it, make it into a nice clear black and white document, save it as PDF or JPEG. Send that up to, uh, you know, your Google Drive, you know, whatever your backup is, your cloud backup, and then your documents are saved. So I'm back into uh, my mode of purging old documents, getting machines, making sure machines are backed up, paperwork is in order. Uh, you know, I hate to sound like I'm going to die or something, but I'm getting my affairs in order, not because I plan on dying anytime soon. But, you know, I, um, I have just a million reasons why, and I could, I could go deeply into them, but, you know, not to be morose, but I want to make it so that if I am incapacitated for any reason or there is uh, a reason that I am needing to be organized, I'm organized, you know? I want my uh, family to be able to find stuff if they need to find stuff uh, without a lot of hassle and going through a lot of paperwork. And this all kind of uh, goes back to just uh, – and here's where I'm going to bring this around. When it comes to uh, audio and getting all that organized, you know, one thing I talked to Jessica about is – her job of archiving uh, big tape collections, you know, going to people's attics and basements and storage sheds and finding, you know, 100 to 200 tapes, um, some organized, some not so organized. And it's her job to take those libraries and really kind of not only digitize them, but uh, possibly clean them up, possibly master them, but also create a database of everything. She is so, so detailed oriented. It's a real inspiration to me. And I, I hope you are inspired in the same way I was uh, when you hear the interview, because it'll just make you want to get everything together. Cross your T's, dot your I's, all that. Make sure that you don't have boxes of receipts laying around. Digitize those, get those cleaned up and somewhat organized. Even if you just like turn them into a PDF with a date, at least that'll give you some sense of organization. Um, Make sure that your hard drives are in order, you know, make sure things are backed up and you know where stuff is because you know what you just, you can be a digital pack rat, which, you know, that's fine, but it's just like being a physical pack rat. 
if you don't know where it is, it's kind of going to be, it's going to be really hard to deal with uh, when people need something. So, and ironically, uh, today I had uh, coffee with uh, an old client of mine, Stephen Emerson, uh, who is a musician and uh, we did a record together some time ago. And he, uh, I mentioned it in the interview with Jessica. He's actually uh, this person, this client of mine who, uh, called me up one time and said, Hey, you know, um, kind of getting all my stuff together. He was getting his stuff together. And, uh, he said, uh, do you have any pro tool sessions? Uh, the pro tool sessions from the session we did. And, and I scratched my hand. I thought, Oh God, I don't know. So lo and behold, you know, I had found them. They were stored on a format called DVD Ram. I think I've talked about this before. So if this is a repeat, I apologize. Anyways, found them on the DVD Ram discs, borrowed the DVD Ram player. If you don't know what DVD Ram is, you can Google it. And I was able to restore 10 year old Pro Tools sessions and uh, get Steven his audio, which was a real victory for me. So it's that, it's the Graham Hill uh, conversation on the TED Talk, uh, it's my interview with Jessica. All these little things are causing me to really uh, continue to go down the path of serious organization and clearing clearing clutter, getting all the junk out of my life. You know, there's a lot of keepsake stuff. Some of it's on uh, you know pieces of paper, whether it's a birthday card or something. And I know physical stuff is nice to have, but you know what? You can take a, a, a solid picture of it so you can re remember it and look back on it, but you don't necessarily always need to have the physical to, uh, you know, to appreciate it. So uh, consider it. Yeah. Digitize, 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 and make sure you have backups and backups of the backups in uh, multiple locations, including some kind of cloud thing. And uh, let me tell you something, friends, if you want to save yourself a lot of heartache, go out and buy Disc Warrior because... It's it, they should change the name. It's actually they should call it Disc Saver or Butt Saver because it really saved my butt here. And uh, I wouldn't be well. I I could find another machine to record on, but I have a lot of stuff on this machine. Unfortunately, it is backed up. But I didn't want to have to go that route. So there it is. That's me uh, hammering it home. Take care of your stuff. Get get together. Get organized. I'll include links to Disc Warrior and Mobile Doc Scanner and the Graham Hill Talk and all that. And you can check that out on, on the website. Go to, of course, workingclassaudio.com. And a couple other requests while I'm at it. Uh, go there and check that stuff out. And, uh, hey, you know, if you like the show, can you do me a solid? Can you go over to iTunes and leave a nice comment? I'd really appreciate it. That would be, that'd be great if you could. And that's about it. So what are we, almost to 12 minutes here, or 11 and a half minutes, and we haven't even got to Jessica's talk yet? Let's, I'll stop talking. I'll stop rambling here. Jessica Thompson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Maybe I better have another coffee. I have to say welcome to the, to the podcast because I always say that. Thank you. It's good to be here. I feel a bit like I'm reaching back to my public radio days. <laughs> Do you have a public radio background? I, I was an on-air announcer at WGBH in Boston. Wow. Made possible by your annual membership support. <laughs> Wow. So you should have your own podcast. Uh, in my spare time. So um, you spent many years on the East Coast, uh, sounds like Boston and, and New York. Give me a little summation of your history on the East Coast, and then we'll transition to the West Coast. All right. I'll give you the bullet points. So the genesis of my career, I suppose, is I was a college DJ. Um, I had a radio show 
late nights at WESU in college. Got a job at WGBH straight out of college on the air. Worked in the middle of the nights. Wow. Midnight to 5 a.m. Right out of college. Uh, parlayed that into doing some really fun on-air work as a jazz DJ. And, you know, running the, the pledge drives, did the pledge drives and all that fun. Then um, I realized I liked the production side of being on the radio. So I started doing some production work, went to grad school, serendipitously got an internship at The Lodge with Emily Lazar, turned that into a job, worked my ass off, learned a lot, studied, listened, got married. <laughs> at some point, my husband um, got into grad school in Boston. So we went up to Boston for a year and I worked with Jeff Lipton at Peerless, which it's funny. I now think of it. You know how chefs will do a stage at some fancy restaurant somewhere and they they learn from the executive chef there and they do like a year in, at some Michelin-starred restaurant in Paris and then they go back to New York and start their own or whatever. I have now come to think of the different studios I've worked at as different stages because you learn so much from being in different studios. You learn different workflows, different gear, different rooms, how people interact with their clients. Um, That's so valuable. So I feel really fortunate that I got to work with Emily. I got to work with Jeff Lipton at Peerless in Boston. I moved back to New York and wound up at the magic shop working with Steve Rosenthal for a bunch of years. Yeah, that's where I got really deeply into doing mastering as well as restoration and archival work. Wow. Did, uh, well, first of all, that's an, a pretty incredible backstory. Um, and then eventually you, you and your husband, you have two kids, you moved out to the West Coast. What was the, what was the whole point in leaving the East Coast? I think it was that time in December when I was carrying a crying baby in a snowstorm to chip ice off my car so I could open it so I could move it before I got a ticket from the street cleaner. And oh, yeah. uh, it, was, it was a combination. It was, you know, tiny apartment, two kids. Everything was so expensive. You had to wait in line for everything. I was always, like, carrying more than I should have been carrying, you know? Um, and at the same time, I was working at the magic shop, and I knew that the magic shop was most likely going to close in the near future. So all these things were happening in my life and telling me that it was time for a change. Mm -hmm. My in-laws live out here. They were sending me pictures of wildflowers when it was like blizzarding and 20 degrees in New York. No, they, they lobbied hard. They lobbied hard to get us out here. And they made it very compelling. So I started, you know, I started to check out the scene out here. And I talked to Michael Romanowski at Coast Mastering. And it was such a good fit, you know. So Michael Romanowski and Piper Payne had been working together for a number of years. But they both do straight mastering. They are both incredibly talented, hardworking mastering engineers. And I knew that I could come in as a mastering and restoration engineer and an archivist and fill a niche in this market that was not being filled. And I knew I would come in as a complement, not as a competitor. And that was really important to me because, you know, I wanted to have an amicable relationship with the people that I work with. And I wanted to come in as like a team member. And I did not want to come out here and open my own shop. I was not interested in coming out and going solo. So it, you know, everything fell into place. I mean, every like not only 
did things work out with Michael? But then he moved to the studio to Berkeley, which is where I live. So I had this amazingly easy commute. I mean, we came out here, we, we signed a lease in three days, which maybe doesn't sound remarkable to the rest of the country. But if you're apartment hunting in the Bay Area and you, we saw like three places signed a lease, that was it. Um, it was ridiculously easy. You know, Everything fell into place. That's I, the short version. To, to me, it's it's very similar to, you know, they say that um, athletes, at least in the United States, uh, there's a, a maybe a history of athletes training in higher altitudes, like in places like Colorado, so that when they go compete in lower altitudes, it's just like easy. Living on the East Coast and dealing with, you know, struggles and, and working hard and really busting your ass and then that's kind of like the Colorado or the high altitude. And then coming down to the West Coast, a little bit easier where if you already have that hardworking, you know, mentality, it kind of comes, uh, I'm not saying it's total easy street, but it's, it's like coming down from high altitude and you can breathe a little easier. Yeah, I get that. I don't work the hours that I used to. I'm glad I did. I am really glad that early in my career, I put in the hours and I worked at that intense level because you learn a lot about what you're capable of. But also when you dive in that deeply and you're so singularly focused on learning to listen and learning to use the gear and learning to deal with the workflow of mastering a record, you know, it's really valuable to immerse yourself so deeply in it for a while. And then you reach a point where you know enough about it that it's okay to back off. And I am really, really happy to be a mastering engineer who works very reasonable hours. Especially with a family. Especially, yeah. That well, definitely makes the work-life balance a little easier. Yeah, it does. Mastering is great for an audio engineer who wants to have a family or have hobbies or have a life outside of the studio because in mastering, if there are hard deadlines, I typically know about them well in advance and I can plan for it. I rarely have sessions where it's like, we need this immediately and you got to work through the night to get this record done. That just doesn't happen. So, you know, I work very reasonable hours and I I work hard when I'm at the studio and I focus and when I have a big session, you know, I've, I've seen the clock, you know, tick past midnight plenty of times, uh, but I don't do it every day. And unlike tracking a band where you're there in the moment, everything's set up and, you know, there's a lot on the line, you know, it's pretty typical to if you tell your your spouse, well, I'll, I'll probably be home at six. I'll probably be home at or, or seven. It's inevitable. The session is going to run longer for one reason or another. Then there's going to be, you know, maybe some cleanup involved. And it's just not as predictable. Yeah, well, I'm guilty of that too. I mean, if I look back at my text history to my husband, there's a lot of like, okay, I just have to uh, export these files and then I'm coming home. Okay, I'm just running a backup. So it's going to be a little bit late, but I'm, I'll be home soon. Okay, I just have to finish one last thing. There's a <laughs> lot of a lot of that. The computer just crashed and everything is gone. I have to stay till 1 a.m. Um, that has never happened, but I have, you know, 
I, I have uh, definitely, I'm guilty of that. Um, but again, it's like with mastering, I can do that if I plan ahead. And I can also take the morning off to chaperone a field trip at my kid's school or take my kid to the dentist or, you know, go on a long bike ride. Um, so the, the flexibility makes for a very, very uh, wonderful work-life balance for me. Tell me, um, because we haven't really had many people or any people really on the show to talk about restoration and uh, archiving. When we talk about archiving, what are we talking about for oh, you and your world? For me. So coming from the mastering world, it was, um, for me, it was just a natural way to further specialize because in mastering, you know, often you're working on new records that are coming out and then occasionally you get a reissue project. And I just started moving more and more toward working on reissue projects because I loved it and because it's something that I was good at. When you start working on the reissue projects, you start running into these situations where someone has 20 tapes in their basement and they need to digitize them and preserve them and figure out what's on them so they can put together a CD or a box set. And then you run into someone who has 200 tapes in their attic and they also need help dealing with it. And then you run into someone who has a thousand tapes and you hire a whole team and you digitize and preserve the content and create a database and send it off to a university archive to be studied and preserved long term. So there's a natural progression there. And because I was interested in it, I became the person at the magic shop that would take on those projects. So your day-to-day, -day, if um, somebody comes at you with one of these, you know, I've got 200 tapes in the attic and maybe another 100 in the moldy, you know, the moldy wet basement, what do you have at your disposal? Like how, what are you doing to clean that up? Are you baking there at the coast? And It depends. Okay. Right? It always depends. Um, I like to do site visits partly because I love a good field trip, but also I like to go meet with people and see what they have and see how things are stored and get a visual on the content. So I will go to someone's house and I will look at their tapes and I will run a rough inventory. Uh, you got to look at the formats. You got to look at the year of the tape, not necessarily the year it was recorded, but the year that tape was manufactured. Um, check out the condition. Then we'll bring them to the coast and if they need to be baked, they get baked at coast. They get transferred at coast. If there are formats that I can't handle, I've got friends in the area with, you know, all the various other machines that I could need. Um, but for the most part, you know, in music, for the most part, I get quarter inch tape. And it might be in stereo or it might be in full track mono or it might be quarter track. But I can handle all those formats in house. And, you know, can I tell you, I'm one tape away from finishing an archive that had, I think I had around a hundred tapes total. I'm one tape away and I'm just, I'm dying to get back to the studio, <laughs> do my last tape. You know, I have like the most beautiful spreadsheet detailing the whole preservation process. Every tape, what machine it was transferred on, the sample rate, the file name, what hard drive it's on. And I have like one entry left. So that's, that's, Today. Are you by nature uh, a meticulous person? Oh, by my God, yes. Well, that's why that's why I am so fortunate to have found a career that plays to my natural strengths as a worker. I mean, I am a detail person. 
I don't do big picture. When I have to deal with with big picture, like project planning stuff, I love nothing more than to partner with someone who thinks that way. But I am a hyper-focused, meticulous detail person, and I love nothing more than to sit in the studio and, you know, de-click a vinyl transfer by hand for four hours. And I will do it by hand if it sounds better that way. Hmm. Sometimes the auto declickers leave terrible artifacts or kill all your snare hits. And I'm, I will not run an auto declicker if it hurts the music. I will sit there for four hours and take out the clicks. How does one bill for a project of that scope? Not by the hour. Right. I know this is, you know, it's interesting. People, people just work in different ways. Um, I like a project rate. I will, I will typically assess how long I think it's going to take me at the beginning of a project and give a project rate. And I do that because I don't like to look at the clock and because I know myself and I know how I work and I can't cut corners. And I would rather put in the time to do it right if it means mathematically my hourly rate is going down um, than have to watch the clock or have to charge someone more than they were expecting because I decided to do things in a way that are it's not time efficient, but maybe sounds best, you know? And typically, is it all just end up on a hard drive? Usually ends up on a hard drive. Um, ideally, two hard drives, two locations, and somewhere in the cloud. What format does it typically find itself in? I work in broadcast wave forms. Um, when I'm archiving, I go up to 192K, 24-bit. Occasionally, I'll work at 96K if the client requests it. Uh, I often make fold downs too, so I'll make a CD quality file and an MP3 listening copy just for access. So you'll digitize at 192. Yes. And then spit out the various That's right. formats from there. Were you taught? Did you just acquire and research on your own how to get to this point where you kind of have a workflow? A little of both. I learned a lot at the magic shop because Steve Rosenthal, the owner, was working with Alan Lomax archives, Woody Guthrie archives. We worked on the Newport Jazz and Folk Festival archives. And then, of course, the last big one we did was the Errol Garner archive. Mm -hmm. So we had these massive projects coming through, and I got to observe the workflow of digitizing a huge collection of tapes and how they would manage data. And then I also am, you know, a person who will sit down and read you know, a white paper on metadata and um, file management. And, you know, I'd go to conferences like, you know, the Association of Recorded Sound Collectors conference and learn about um, MD5 checksums. And, you know, you got to, yeah. You got to dig deep if you want to do it and you do dig it right. Deep. I mean, okay, I have moments where I really wish I'd gone to library school. And gotten a proper archiving degree. Uh, got and a degree in, in, what is it, library science? Yes. Yeah. But fortunately, my, my husband went to library school. So occasionally, wow. I, I'm like, Mike, can you tell me about, you know, blah, 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 whatever. My head's spinning a little bit with so many questions. Because this is, this, is uh, this is a path, actually, that I would like to dig deeper into myself. But uh, when we talk about, you know, digitizing... And what you learn uh, at the magic shop, is there, I mean, is there anything beyond, I mean, my understanding is a, a lot of my digitization or uh, archiving work 
knowledge comes from uh, conversations with Tarden Feathered. Mm-hmm. Because Tarden is just the master of many formats. Oh, definitely. Especially <sighs> magnetic media. And tape formulation. Yeah. So, so when we digitize, you know, beyond um, whether you bake or whether you not bake, depending on, you know, tape formulation and, and all that. And um, in terms of uh, the, the process itself, isn't it just truly, I know I'm trying to simplify it, but isn't it just a matter of getting a high quality uh, playback deck and a great set of converters and Oh, it in. if only it were that simple. Tell right? me, tell, educate me. Tell me what what do we need to know? Yeah, of course. You need a high quality, well maintained playback deck, well calibrated. You need your high quality converters, well calibrated. Um, but a lot of it is handling the materials, and you know, for example, with this last archive that I worked on, the one with about a hundred tapes. This stuff is not labeled. You don't know what speed it's at. You don't know what the recording format was. You don't know what machine it was recorded on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, sometimes you put up a tape and say you have, a, you know, a stereo head stack on and everything looks fine and you're like, oh, that sounds really warbly. Well, guess what? You might have a full track mono tape and you're not necessarily going to know unless you look at it through a magnetic viewer. So I have a little magnetic viewer and you can visually see the formulation of the recorded sound on that tape. And then you can tell, oh, it's full track mono. Pull out the other head stack, run it on that. It's going to sound better. You know, if you're working in stereo and things are sounding really phasey or muffly, maybe your azimuth adjustment is off. You have to know how to make these minute little adjustments that make a big difference in how things sound. And that's just you know, it's just years of doing it and coming across all kinds of weird tapes. Or like I had a squeaky tape the other day and it didn't need to be baked. It was not, that was not the issue. It was not shedding. It was a squeaker. And you know how you play back a squeaky tape? You have to lubricate it. So I came up with this crazy method of um, using like basically fancy q-tips to lubricate the tape right before it went over the head so it wouldn't squeak and it wouldn't get stuck and it was laborious but i got a great playback was the squeak making it into the capture yeah absolutely okay so q-tips with what was there isopropyl alcohol Uh, huh interesting and i guess it's kind of a a major gamble too because you're dealing with tapes that are old and you you have to be a little you have to handle them with kid gloves mm-hmm. because one wrong move and you could lose it, right? That's right. Wow. I know. A little pressure. A lot of pressure. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, magnetic viewer? Yes. What does that look like? Um, it's called the Arnold. Okay. Did <laughs> you name it ma- that or no, is it it's really? It's made by like Arnold Industries, I think. It's, a, it's like a little disc with magnetic particles in it. And when you put it on top of a piece of tape, the magnetic particles arrange themselves and you can see the tape formulation. Does that not alter the content of the tape? No. Oh, the magnetic particles on the disc align themselves with what's on the tape and mimic it. Yes. So you can see what's on the tape. Oh, and if it's full track mono, it would just be one strip. And if it's stereo, you'd you'd see it. Yeah. You see the, the tape, the track formulation. Wow. Super cool. Okay. Yeah. I have definitely learned, I've already learned a shitload already, but 
Huh. So keeping track of all this, a database, like what, what are you doing for a database and what are you keeping track of? Well, there are really excellent open source archival databases out there. Um, sometimes I like there's a site for anyone who's interested called avpreserve.com um, out of New York. They do oh, such amazing work. A lot of open source tools for archivists, but you can download an AV preservation spreadsheet with, you know, 30 fields and then specialize it toward your particular project. So I'll I'll pare down because when I'm doing a, a project, I'm not doing this as um, a university archivist. I'm doing this as a digitization specialist. So I collect metadata that makes sense for me, but I will do a catalog number. If this, if the items don't have catalog numbers, I will sign a unique ID to them. Um, artist, secondary artists, a title, if there is a title, when it was recorded, where it was recorded, what the tape is, what the tape format is, uh, the condition. And then I document things like what tape machine did I transfer on? What was the sample rate and bit depth of the transfer? What's the file name? Who was the transfer engineer? It's not always me. Sometimes I have other people working on these. When it was backed up, where it was backed up. And then beyond that, I will also do... Um, a transfer report of the contents and any major sonic anomalies and a subjective grading of the quality of the recording. Are you doing straight transfers or are you trying to clean up? No, straight transfers. Okay. So if there's I'm trying to think of a scenario where a cleanup would be in order, but you're just literally doing a straight transfer and that's, I mean, that actually well, takes one level of. That's level one in the, in the best circumstances. Okay. Um, when there's a budget, we do get to clean them up. Or when something is going to be turned into a commercial product, then we curate archival contents, and then I get to clean them up and restore and then remaster for release. So you break it up into phases. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, if you get introduced to uh, an army of tapes, uh, the first step is to, you know, do everything that you just spoke about. And then if it's depending on what the goal is, if it's going to be commercially released, obviously, you know, um, maybe a mastering job is in order, yeah. cleanup job. Wow. And that's what I'm hoping to do with this most recent archive. Mm, we did a hundred tapes. That's a lot of hours of content, but pull the best stuff from that and you are going to have a knockout of a release. How do people find you? And, you know, how do you get your work? Where does... Largely word of mouth. When you super specialize, as I have, um, you know, you just become known as the person who can deal with persnickety formats, you know. I work a lot with this label, Awesome Tapes from Africa, and I've gotten a lot of work because of that, because people know that I can take a dusty old cassette, you know, manufactured 30 or 40 years ago, 40 years ago. Yeah. Oh, my God. Cassettes mm -hmm. are old, aren't they? They are. Um and coax the music out of it, you know, or I can take a vinyl record and get a really high quality, clean transfer and clean it up and make it sound, you know, as, as close as we can get to how it sounded when it was recorded. So. Wow. A lot of word of mouth. So what would you suggest to someone like myself or others out there who have a strong desire to want to get more involved in that. I don't want to necessarily make that the only thing I do. 
but it's something that I definitely want to get deeper into and learn more about. What What do you recommend to, to myself and to others out there, or even to those out there who have no path for their audio career and definitely want to explore this? What should they do? Um, I guess there's it's 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 a two part question because when you're talking about people like me, I've already got years of experience, but need to know like what's the you know I'm learning right now what the workflow is and what's involved and holy crap, <laughs> that's it's inspiring to hear the 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 level of detail to which you go to to really uh, preserve these things. So, what are some considerations? Um, well. I'll be honest about a couple of things. And one is you have to have the right mindset for it. And you have to be a detail person. And not all jobs in audio and in music require that. So you have to know yourself and you have to know that you're the kind of person who will never make a typo because you cannot make a typo in a spreadsheet or you cannot properly search for your data. So if you're that person, archiving is for you. <laughs> um, but the other thing I, I caution about is, you know, you don't dabble. You don't, like like mastering, you don't dabble in mastering. Mastering is all or nothing. If you're going to be a mastering engineer, then you study to be a mastering engineer and you focus and that's how you learn to listen and that's how you learn to work with music. And I go all in. And it's kind of the same with archiving. You can learn to do high quality transfers, but if you are truly going into being an archivist, um, you go all in and you learn metadata standards and you learn best practices and you care about things like um, MD5 checksums and you care about data integrity and you care about data organization and backups. And, you know, I, I just caution people to, uh, I caution people to not attempt to dabble in things like archiving where there are very serious repercussions if you don't do it right. Hmm. Because a lot of times you get one shot at doing it. And if you get a bad playback and that's the only time that tape's going to be digitized, then forevermore you got a bad playback. Or if you lose data because you weren't doing proper backups or you didn't name your files correctly, you know, that carries Would you through. suggest to anybody, no matter what their skill level, to, if they're interested in it, to not necessarily try to go it alone, but maybe try to work under someone like you who is dead serious about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I will, I will say I'm being like kind of uh, hardcore about this, but I've had a lot of people work with me and under me who have been amazing transfer engineers and I, you know, I'll project manage mm -hmm. and it's, it's a great lesson in how to be diligent and how to be detail-oriented, and that stuff carries over into all aspects of audio work. Mm. I mean, if I'm riding your ass about how you name your files, and then you go off and maybe you're more interested in being a recording engineer, guess what? You're going to name your files really consistently, and that's going to be great for everyone. When it comes to naming files, I mean, I think that that's relevant, certainly, in you know, this day and age, because God knows I've mixed a lot of stuff where, you know, you know the story. Oh, yeah. It's the, the damn DAW session shows up with audio 101-101, audio 201-101, and it's... Uh, final, oh. final, final, real final. Yeah. With a date. Right. <laughs> so where did you learn the art of labeling? 
I know that sounds ridiculous. I read an AES white paper on file naming conventions. Okay. <laughs> it's true. I mean, there's like this research has been done, you know, and it's it's smart. Like the people who write those papers, they are smart. And, and these have, papers are available online oh, yeah. to buy. This is downloaded. You just, you know, I'm, I'm like a person who Googles what, uh, white paper naming conventions, something like that. And that, and then, you know, in, in some ways people develop their own methodology, methodologies that work for their workflow. So in my mastering work, you know, I have a way of labeling my files and I do it the same way every time. And when I go back through my years of mastering backups, I can tell exactly what everything is. So I hear your message about consistency, specialization and, and really focusing. I think I'm the type of person that I feel like life is so short that I want to do it all. And I want to yeah. have my hand in all of it because it all is like. I think that totally works for some people. And I know a lot of engineers and I respect them so deeply who can mix and record and perform and work in so many areas of music. But, you know, I, I do think that mastering and restoration, you know, it's a specialty. And for me, I'm glad I'm solely and singularly focused on that. I don't record. I don't mix. I definitely don't perform. Mm -hmm. Although I will sit in my house and play guitar really badly for fun. <laughs> What about the long-term storage of these things? So you get, okay, you go through these great pains and, and documentation and transfer, and then it winds up on a couple hard drives and maybe a cloud version as well. Those hard drives at some point are going to become difficult to play. Yeah, definitely. It's, tr it's tricky because we're kind of in a transitionary period with um, hard drives. Yeah. So th this is one of those times when I don't consider myself an expert by far. And I call up or email my archivist friends who are working in university archives and ask them for advice because um, I certainly don't think of myself as an expert in all things archiving. I have my, my specialties, but, you know, I definitely go to the pros when it comes to things like this. And right now, you know, you want to have it on two hard drives in two locations and also in the cloud, and then you migrate to new hard drives every couple of, every couple of years. So you know, just for my mastering work, I actually have three hard drives, two at home, one at the studio, and then I keep all my recent masters in the cloud. Um, and then I just migrate. So every couple of years, oh, I'll buy another two terabyte hard drive, move all the masters over. It's not fun. It's not glamorous, but, and I'm not even beholden. I, I don't have to keep the masters. I do it because I'm a, a good person and I care. I just had this conversation with Dave Fridman uh, because I pointed out to him, I said, I said, you know, I'm looking at your website and you have like, you have an Otari radar or you have a, you have a radar, you have an Otari two inch, you have a TSR eight, you have this, you have that. He's like, yeah, it's because if I don't keep that stuff, then the record companies are going to lose it. Oh, and, yeah. And I, I, he feels an obligation to, to hold on to it. I'm, I'm in the same position. I uh, am constantly hoarding and pack being a pack rat about this kind of stuff uh here's a i mean you you're teaching me so much here there's there's something that i can maybe uh reciprocate with some knowledge uh, the the company i mentioned this a couple shows ago there's a company that i'm using now for cloud backup that's located in san mateo called backblaze 
Yeah, I've heard of Backblaze. And apparently they do a lot of hard drive research hmm. because they're going through hard drives constantly. So they have some reports on hard drive failure rates and uh, what what drives are working for them, what drives aren't working for them. I am going to check that out. Yeah. I'm very much a fan of, when it comes to this kind of work we're talking about, I'm a big fan of the cloud, I got to say, because it kind of, if you, I don't know, uh, work a couple cloud companies, you know, like Backblaze and maybe CrashPlan or Carbonite or one of the, you know, maybe two cloud services. Uh, I mean, I know that CrashPlan's like $6.99 a month and Backblaze is around 5 or 6 a month. Mm -hmm. Cheaper if you buy a year or two in advance, but it's unlimited. Yeah. And really kind of pulls a lot of the tension that I feel about like, okay, I've got this hard drive here and this hard drive here. Oh, crap. I forgot to turn this one on and now it well, won't I mean, start. The cloud is still, it's not really a cloud. It's still a hard drive. It's just in a different place. It is. But I, I would agree, but it's it's like, you know. It's far better. Redundant. Than... You want to talk about specialization and, and being oh, singular. Man. I mean, those people, that's, that's their thing. Yeah. So, yeah. And respect to them because it's definitely something that is needed. Yeah, no kidding. The the clientele that you have, on the average, is it pretty rare to have somebody do something as a commercial release? No, not really. I get a lot of archival projects where um, you know, someone has tapes that were recorded throughout their career and some of the stuff was released commercially, but there's just so much content, so many cool collaborations that never got released. And it's great as a retrospective to go through that stuff and find really amazing gems and put them together. And sometimes it's like a compilation or sometimes it's just something that hasn't been released or hasn't been reissued. Does any any of your clients ever come back at you and complain about the time it takes? No. I think people are patient. Most of the time this stuff's been in their basements and attics for decades. So... When I tell them it's going to take a couple of months to digitize, they're like, oh, okay, all right, we're going to do it. They're so excited to take that step and move forward. And I'm trying to, uh, I don't want to pry financially with the project rates, but I mean, can you give me a, like a broad range of what a project costs? Like what's sure. an average like project run? Uh, well, um, I guess there is no average. It's uh, average is tough. You know, I look at a lot of different things. I have kind of formulas that I come up with, but I will look at the number of tapes, the approximate duration of the tapes, any additional factors that would um, take time on my end, like is it encoded with Dolby? Um, is it going to need to be baked? Are there a million splices I'm going to have to fix while I'm doing transfers? And I try to work it out so that I can charge a day rate in which the studio gets money and the technician gets money and it's fair for the client. And on a large scale project, if I'm working on quarter inch tapes, you know, it can range anywhere from like 60 to $100 a tape, depending on duration and all those other factors. Cassettes and vinyl, it's the same thing. You know, it depends on how many I'm doing, how long it's going to take and any factors that would would take more time than you know, than average. Do you do a lot of vinyl transfers? Yeah, I do. Uh, what, beyond uh, digitizing somebody's personal music library, like what would give somebody 
reason to do that? Largely for reissues, because um, say a record came out in the 60s, the master tapes are long gone. This is the only document of that record. Someone's going to reissue it. They send me the best copy they can find or copies. If I'm lucky, I get copies. I clean them. I do a really high quality transfer. We work from that. That's the reissue. So that reissue sometimes will originate from yeah, somebody's often. vinyl coffee. coffee. Yeah, I did. Um, I did the California Playboys. They were San Francisco. Um, I think I think they were just a bunch of studio pros that got together and were like, "Let's make a record," and they made this knockout record. And of course, you know, tapes are gone. The record's barely out there. It's like a thousand dollar record, but. Lucky me, I had a couple copies in hand and I got to do a really good transfer, remaster it from the vinyl, clean it up. Wow. Tell me about transferring vinyl and cassette. Like, uh, start with vinyl. What's, what's involved there? First and foremost, cleaning it. So I have a wet vac cleaner and it, it's literally just like a wet vac. Like you squirt your, your special solution. You have to use special solutions for vinyl. And then if you're going back and working on, you know, acetates, you use a different formulation. So you got to be careful with your chemicals. Um, But I clean it really, really well. And I have a couple of different styli to choose from. Um, And I use, I have a Technics 1200 workhorse of a turntable that I had souped up by KAB. It's this company in New Jersey that will do all these crazy, awesome modifications to your turntable. So like I have an external power supply, so it's quieter. And I upgraded all of the wiring and I upgraded my tone arm and it rests in a silicon bath. So it's, um, it's like a smoother ride over the, over the vinyl. Just It like, rests in a silicon bath? Like the, the tone arm. <laughs> There's like a little silicon, it's like gel, you know? Really? Just, you know, like little modifications. Little tiny things in the chain. That make a big difference sonically. Um, And then I got this um, awesome archival preamp. So I can, you know, vinyl, when you play it back, it has an RIAA curve on it that you have to decode. So it does that, but it also does NAB and all these early like pre-war EQ curves, or you can run it flat. So- Who makes that? Vadlid. I think they're a Danish company. Huh. All I know is I was on a wait list for like six months to get this box. So obviously expensive. Not, and like not crazy. I think it was like $3,000. Okay. I mean, not, not crazy expensive though. I mean, there are, right. you know how, you know the oh, audio file Oh, I know. The audio file oh, world is, I don't know, um, can be crazy. It can be very crazy. And I like, again, respect. I If I had $10,000, I would buy a $10,000 record player and, you know, $7,000 stylized. Hope you're enjoying the interview here with Jessica Thompson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Want to take a sponsor break with Audio Technica for a bit. You know, we were talking about digitizing vinyl. And if you are interested in picking yourself up a turntable from our friends at Audio Technica, uh, head on over to audio-technica.com. Go to the turntable uh, section. Uh, that would be, of course, under products. And it would be under turntables and cartridges. Uh, you know, Audio Technica has been in the business of... Uh, transducers for many years. So not only do they offer turntables, but they offer a, a broad line of styly, as Jessica called it, which I guess would be styli- stylus times, you know, plural stylus. It's kind of like cacti, styla, styly or styli, I guess you'd say. Anyhow, 
Uh, head on over there, check out the offerings. They have uh, some direct drive turntables, uh, some belt drive turntables, uh, some of them with built-in uh, built-in phono preamps and uh, USB outputs, if that's uh, what you're looking for. So uh, yeah, check that out. Uh, Audio-Technica.com if you want to pick up a turntable. So yeah, just a reminder that Audio-Technica does have a pretty broad selection of turntables and styly to choose from. How about that? All right, let's get back into it with Jessica Thompson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let me interrupt your explaining the process for a minute. I want to I want to ask you about What's the balance of, and this is really the skeptic and the, the devil's advocate in me, there's pro audio, there's audiophile. Sometimes those two camps don't get along very well because uh, sometimes the audiophile world, I feel, uh, can be somewhat over the top, we'll just say, <laughs> um, to a point of what I consider absurd. So with respect to the audiophile world, sometimes... So what's the balance in audiophile and pro audio and your world? And how do you, how do you, uh, I'm trying to figure out the most nice way to say this without offending the audiophile people. Where do you strike a balance for buying gear that is not, that you don't perceive as just snake oil? Um, and that is hmm. genuinely going to improve well, you know, to your I professional ear. I have like a, a built-in budget, you know, like I don't have unlimited funds here. So that kind of immediately puts a lid on what I can and cannot experiment with. Um, I personally, I, I buy the best I can afford. Um, How do you determine what's the best without having the luxury of listening? I try to get the luxury of listening. Mm -hmm. You know, I try to, to find dealers or friends in the industry who can let me try out different things or I talk to people who have worked with different pieces of gear. Um, buying that Vadlid phono preamp was a, a bit of a leap of faith because there aren't that many archival phono preamps out there. And, you know, I I did enough research that I felt I could jump on that one. See, um, that, that right there, that phono preamp, that makes sense to me from just a, pr a practical level, because it, it's a tool that does a series of things and addresses needs for a wide range of possibilities that you would run into. What about like, for example, you mentioned your tone arm floating in the, the silicon bath thing. Yeah, um, well, I think that was a like a, a cheap modification. I was like, sure, I'll pay 15, oh, okay, I'll okay. Pay 15 bucks for that. I, don't, okay, I actually okay. I have no idea how much it was. Okay. Um, no, there are, you know, you make these incremental decisions and my goal is always to get as clean and as accurate a transfer as possible. So anytime I can remove something that interferes with that, I remove it. And if that means getting a separate power supply that's quieter, hooray. If that means, you know, upgrading my converters, I will do that. Okay. Um, but I'm also, like, I'm realistic and I know that... Um, a lot of times these things were not recorded particularly well in the first place. So it's not like I'm trying to, you know, recapture the sound of something that was so clean and glorious at its moment of inception that I have to to reach back and, and you know, and, and try to capture that off of tape. Like if I'm working from a cassette, it's going to have hiss. You know, if I'm working from vinyl, there are going to be clicks and pops and maybe I can get them out, but there's still the frequency limitation of the media. 
So back to the process. I, I'll stop hassling you about the the audio file versus pro audio world and just say that it seems like you figure out what your needs are to get the cleanest, best transfer and source a, a product like this archival. And also, you know, that also has to do with my clients because if I were the type of person who, you know, had a $20,000 turntable and a $10,000 stylus, how much am I going to charge for vinyl transfers? Or how much would I have to charge to make that a viable business option? So I'm trying to be um, high quality yet reasonable, you know? Okay. And actually, before I, once again, I'm going to interrupt again. Talk to me about the financial realities of this. Surviving what you can charge, what the market will bear, all that. Mm-hmm. What are what are some of your thoughts on that that you can share? Like you just stated, just the practicalities of you know, if you buy a ten thousand dollar turntable, then then what? Well, there's a law of diminishing returns with that too. Okay. I mean, I have a great turntable, and I have a couple of really excellent styli, and I'm really happy with the with the quality of the transfers I'm able to get from that. Same thing with my other gear. I mean, I'm working with an ATR 104 tape machine, and I love it, and it sounds great. There are, are you can always go up, right? But there's going to be a lot of diminishing returns with how much better can you get the sound, how much more accurate can you get the sound, and how much money do you have to throw at it? So you know, there's a there's a sweet spot. There's, a, there's always a sweet spot, right? Um, in terms of like archiving as a viable career option. Um, You know, it's interesting. There have been moments, especially after my daughter was born, my second child, I had a moment when I was like, oh, shit, I need a real job. I'm going to go work at a university archive and transfer the contents of that archive and have benefits and vacation time and stability. And I thought very seriously about going that direction. And I didn't, you know, and it worked for me, um, partly because I wouldn't say there's a lot of money in archiving, but there are ways to fund those projects and they can be long term, which does offer a little more stability. I mean, when I worked on the Errol Garner archive at the Magic Shop, that was over a year and it was steady work. And we had a thousand tapes to transfer and cassettes and dats and discs and there was remastering to be done with some of that content. That's a long-term project, and it kept a lot of people busy. So it's also a way to diversify. If I was just mastering records, you know, it'd be a lot of hustling to get in enough records to form a viable career out of that. But doing both the archiving and mastering and remastering, you know, they... They all work in concert, but they also allow me to diversify a little bit. So if I don't have a lot of records lined up, I've got a lot of tapes in the wings waiting to be transferred. Interesting. So now to jump back on the the workflow train, um, you talked about the vinyl. You talked about the, the gear used for that and the cleaning and the f- f- fluids uh, used to clean vinyl. So obviously, I'm knowing now what you've told me, I'm sure you dug into white papers on what cleaning products that you can get away with using on, to be used on vinyl oh, yeah. without uh, degrading anything or leaving a residue that would uh, mm-hmm. inhibit or... Uh, or damage. Damage the, yeah. So what about cassettes? 
Oh, I love cassettes. I really I do love too. working on cassettes. Um, same thing. There are, um, well, the big thing with cassettes is the condition of the housing. And, um, you know, when you play a cassette, there's like a little felt pad that presses the tape against the heads. Yes. If that has deteriorated, then what I do is uh, pop that sucker open like a clamshell and put the tape into a brand new cassette, rehousing it, screw it back together, and transfer, you know, the 40-year-old tape in a brand new cassette shell. And that will give you a cleaner playback. You know, but sometimes the tape breaks and you splice it back together. Uh, sometimes it squeaks and you can lubricate it with siloxin, I think. There's a there's like a 15-syllable word for the chemical that you use on cassette tape. <laughs> I read a white paper about it. I'm sure you did. <laughs> Um, I can send out links for anyone. White paper will be your new middle name. Yes. Um, what can I say? I read a lot. I like to do my I research. I think it's great. You're in, you're inspiring me to get on the AES website and start downloading white papers. Well, there are a lot of really brilliant people out there who have been doing this work for a long time. And unfortunately, a lot of them are getting on up there in age and they need to pass down this information to younger engineers because I have not encountered all of the playback problems that these older engineers have encountered. And, you know, often they were recording this, they, they, they were recording the stuff that I'm now preserving. <laughs> you know, like... You could probably call some of them. Yeah, I, I have. You know, I'll email someone and say, hey, you know, I've come across this problem. Can you help me figure out how to get a proper playback? And they're a great resource. I would love to have more mentors who were recording in the 60s and 70s and who can tell me about weird playback formulations and how to deal with degrading media. Um, and there's definitely, there's a point at which, you know, there's a point at which my ability to deal with things drops off and then I call in the experts. So if I get a tape that's like covered with mold, I am not going to do that tape. I will send it off to like Sonicraft in New Jersey and they will deal with it. So... Yeah, there's gonna, a limit. I was going to ask, do you do you farm some of the work out? Definitely. I mean, if it's beyond my skill set, like, uh -huh. I know what I can do. And I care way too much about the quality of the preservation to attempt things that are beyond my skill set. So if it's beyond my ability to deal with, I will call in, you know, the big guns. And factor that into your price, obviously. Yeah. Um, what cassette machine do you use? I have a Nakamichi. Okay. I bought it out here in Moraga. Uh, it was refurbished by Willie Herman, who is like the West Coast guy for dealing with Nakamichis. Uh -huh. um, it's great. It has adjustable playback azimuth. Isn't that awesome? Wow. Just little things, you know? Little things that make such a difference in my ability to play back a variety of cassettes recorded or manufactured in different times, different places. Wow. This is really interesting to hear these different facets of... Um, I mean, there's so much detail and there's so much minutia, like, but I, I don't, usually I use minutia as a negative term. Uh, really? Well, sometimes, minutia. but in this case, this is required minutia that is so critical to doing this correctly. I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by it in, in many ways. I'm glad, you um, know, but I'm not even, like, I don't even consider myself like, a super expert in this stuff. You should talk to the people at university archives or people who've been 
you know, studying this academically for a long time or, or have been doing this their entire career. It's like there's so much knowledge out there. And I do the best I can and I seek out advice when I need it. And honestly, I feel like my my real strength is being able to straddle the line between pro audio and mastering and archiving. And I like I feel very comfortable talking to musicians and archivists and engineers. And I'm I'm always the crossover person. I'm always the translator. And that's, you know, that's really valuable to me to be able to talk to a musician about preserving their contents, but also talk to a university archivist from that perspective or talk to a pro audio salesman about why I need to buy a particular piece of gear. And, you know, when you can translate amongst all those people, then you're able to you know, really come up with a workflow and with, you know, a selection of gear um, that benefits everyone. Here's a question. What do you do with all the tapes when it's all done? Um, Best case scenario, they are acquired by a university archive or a museum or a library of Congress. And that's happened several times with large archives I worked on. Um, second best case, they go into climate controlled storage. Worst case, they go back in the attic or the basement, you know, but at least the contents are preserved, you know? Right. I want the best case for everything, but I'm a realist and I know people have limited budgets. So you do the best you can. Let's say you get through a project. You've done all the, all the heavy lifting. Everything's on a couple hard drives. It's in the cloud. Client walks away with these drives. What are the steps for future-proofing this that you take with the client? Are are there any future-proofing steps or is it just, okay, here's your hard drive. Good luck. Well, at that point, it's often out of my hands. You know, again, if we're going with our best case scenario here, those hard drives will go to a university archive or Library of Congress and they get ingested into their systems. Then it's the onus is on the Library of Congress to uh, deal with long-term preservation um, out of my hands. But, you know, as I was telling you earlier, like I, I keep backups. I don't keep backups of all the, um, transfers I do because that would be like, you know, just dozens and dozens of hard drives. Um, and it's not my responsibility and also it's not my content, you know, I don't need to hold on to that. But usually, you know, there will be duplicate hard drives and the client will keep one set and one set will go to the repository. And I'm talking, these are big archives now, so... If it's smaller, you know, kind of case by case, deal with it. Obviously, there's going to be a point at which these libraries are going to diminish because the availability of <clears throat> of libraries, because you're not the only archivist and there's obviously there's lots of archiving and those who are motivated are going to get their stuff digitized. Eventually, we're going to probably come into a, a transitionary period or we are, probably are in a transitionary period where are you dealing with DAW? preservation? At like born digital? That's what they call it. Born digital? Born digital. Yeah. Um, sometimes, yes. Me, not so much, only because there is so much old analog media that has not been digitized. I mean, AV Preserved did a study, and I cannot remember the number of hours, but it was so astounding, the estimated number of hours of recorded material out there that has never been digitized. We would all have jobs for eternity. That's good to know. Maybe not eternity, but we would all be quite secure if there was enough money to digitize everything that had ever been 
recorded. Um, no, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's tons of stuff. And, you know, for all the ups and downs in the music industry, there always will have been music. So there always will be something to look back at and preserve or restore or remaster. I mean, I felt victory when <clears throat> I had a client uh, get in touch with me and we had, we had done some sessions and I had backed up his Pro Tools session 10 years prior onto DVD-RAM. <laughs> yeah. And for the audience, that's basically, DVD-RAM was, a, it was a cartridge with a dual-sided, sometimes single-sided, but uh, oftentimes dual-sided DVD rewritable in this little cartridge and you'd pop it in and it would read it and it would read like any kind of optical media. But this guy calls me up and says, hey, so do you have those files? And I was like, uh, have? I, I might. And I went into my garage at the time in Oakland and uh, dug through a box and I found the DVD RAMs, borrowed the DVD RAM player and found an old computer and put it all together. And lo and behold, those Pro Tools sessions opened up you could still access. like magic. That's awesome. I mean, it's a real problem keeping legacy machines working and finding techs who can keep things running. That's a huge problem. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've I mean, often... you know how many eBay search um, lit search thingies? What are they called? Like the eBay searches that I have saved. So I get the emails every day and it's like, oh, this mini disc player just got listed on eBay. I, you know, I keep an eye on that stuff because if I need a, if I get a mini disc collection, I need a good mini disc player. Yeah. I have mastered from Minidisc. Well, do, that's funny. See, I've got a Minidisc player down there. Well, good to know. With a digital out. <laughs> um, yeah, I've often thought about that. I've often thought, like I see, I have a friend, in fact, uh, uh, who's got an old OS9 Pro Tools rig Whoa. with 888s in a, like, all racked up, good ready to, to be turned on. And I right. thought, he, I think he asked me, like, you know, what do you think I should do with that? I'm like, you should hold on to that. Why? I was like, because you never know. You never know. Well, I mean, if you've got the space to keep it. I always, that's what I think about, like, for example, my DAP machine. My, I have a, a Panasonic 3700 that still works fantastic. Yeah. And I've often thought, should I get rid of that? I'm like, no, what am I keep it. I can make more money from holding on to it and using it in, in a project because I, I have a ton of DATs. Mm -hmm. And digitize those because DATs, man, they're tricky. That's funny. So when Digitize the DAT. So yeah, well. when you, if you were to transfer DAP, <clears throat> let me get your advice here. Would you take the digital out of the DAP machine or would you take the analog out of the DAP machine? It depends. Um, I've done it a couple of ways. I, uh, for a while at the Magic Shop, I was using a DAT extractor, which would read the DAT like a digital linear tape. We just pull off the ones and zeros faster than real time. Um, that was really efficient and it would spit out uh, an error report that was useful. Um, I would go digital unless it won't play back digitally. And then I would go analog. Hmm. Okay. Good to know. Well, this has been pretty damn awesome to uh, hear all of this. Certainly, uh, thank you for riding your bike from Berkeley over here. Should I ride back? I don't know. That's up to you. How do you feel? Uh, you know, it's a big hill. Yeah. I have to ponder it is, whether but... I want to tackle that hill twice in one day. Yeah. Uh, fantastic having you on the show. This is information that... I think a lot of people don't really know a whole lot about. Well, cool. I'm and so I think you've share. educated many, many, uh, many thousands of listeners. It's nice to nerd out on uh, audio um, archiving. Where can people learn more about your 
your work. Do you have a website? I have a website. It's jessicathompsonaudio.com. And of course, you can always find me at coastmastering.com with my comrades, Michael Romanowski and Piper Payne. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming over. Thank you. This was super fun. Jessica Thompson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Very, very informative. And I hope uh, maybe it'll inspire you to try to go down that path if uh, you haven't thought about it already. Anyways, there it is. We're done. Time to go. Time to thank everybody. Of course, time to thank Cliff Truesdale, Cole Williams, and Chuck Smith. I want to thank our sponsors too, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. I want to, of course, thank Jessica Thompson again, and I want to thank you for listening. I appreciate you tuning in. See you next time. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.